in the latest sign that I am, in fact, getting old. I'm starting the sermon with a reference to a television show that is so old, I used to watch it on those DVD packs that had the full seasons of the show on them. That's right, I'm nothing if not hip to the cool cultural references with the kids these days. (laughs) Speaking of those DVD packs, by the way, I was at the library this week picking up a couple of books we had on hold, and on the same shelf, someone had put on hold what appeared to be the entire collection of the show Cheers, so there were at least 30 DVD cases packed up uh, for this person. I wish I'd counted how many, because I've got a curious now, but they're probably binging as we speak still. Anyway, the show Arrested Development is one of my all-time favorites, and among other things that it was really great at, if you made a ranking of shows with the most running jokes per episode, this show would have to be at the top. It's always money in the banana stand. And there's this one running joke, illusions, Michael! (laughs) Okay, that's enough. (laughs) I'll stop. I'm hoping that there is at least one person out there who appreciates uh, my humor and my references. But anyhow, there is this one running joke that starts when the son of the main character starts dating this girl who is plain in every sense. Her personality, her looks, everything. And every time a new character finds out about this relationship, they all react the same way. Her? And it's the sort of thing that's kind of funny the first time but the more it happens the funnier it gets and it gets to the point where the writers somehow work this her reaction in anytime this girl comes up and it becomes a running joke for the rest of the season and this came to mind to me for this week because that reaction her perfectly captures a fundamental tendency that we have as humans we are a tribal species who naturally develop our in-group sometimes based on family ties, sometimes based on something else, and quickly identify who fits in that tribe, in evolutionary terms, we might say, who is safe, and then who doesn't fit into our tribe. Them? To use an even older cultural reference, it's the story of Romeo and Juliet. Or to use an actually current reference, it's West Side Story. Although I'm not sure it counts as a current reference when it's a current movie that's a remake from one in the 60s. Anyway, It is a natural impulse for us as humans to divide ourselves into our tribe and them. And it's possible to read Deuteronomy, and in fact, I think most people do read Deuteronomy this way, as an exercise in defining the in-group. Who is us and who is them? The people of Israel are supposed to be a holy people, set apart, different, dedicated to Yahweh, and not the idols of the nations around them. In fact, as we've referenced before, and as I explored in the backdrop just a little while ago, Deuteronomy tells the people to completely destroy alternate identities in the promised land so that they would not be led astray from their God. People or tribes within Israel who threaten this group identity are supposed to be cut off completely. That's the reason for many of the death penalty laws in the Torah. It's not punishment so much as removing the threat to wholeness and holiness set apartness from their midst. And in the millennia since these words were written, different communities in the interest of following God have taken this message to heart. To follow God means to separate out, to purge the unfaithful from their midst, to draw strict boundaries around us, and to, at best, look down on them. But, as is so often the case in the Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament, things aren't quite that simple. Or, put more precisely, the theme of holiness, of group identity, is balanced by a competing theme. One that reacts to the question of them with 
Yes, even them. Deuteronomy chapter 25, starting in verse 1, says, When there is a dispute between people, they shall approach the court of justice, and the court shall judge them, and find for the one in the right, and against the one in the wrong. And it shall be, if the one in the wrong deserves blows, the judge shall make him lie down, and have him struck before him, according to his wrongdoing, in number. Forty blows he may strike him, he shall not go farther lest he go on to strike him beyond these great many blows and your brother seem of no account in your eyes. Now, our attention when we read these verses tends to focus on the corporal punishment aspect of this command, since that's the strange part to us culturally. Although we should keep in mind that in the ancient world, there really was no such thing as a prison sentence. Criminality was punished either through fines, corporal punishment of some sort, exile, or death. So this sort of punishment is actually one of the lighter possible sentences at the time, even if it seems harsh and barbaric to us today. Be that as it may, what I want to focus our attention on is the limit that's put on the beating. 40 blows, no more. And most importantly, the reason for that limit. It says he shall not go farther than 40 blows, lest he go on to strike him beyond these great many blows. And then here's the important part and your brothers seem of no account in your eyes. The limit is not out of concern for the criminal's physical well-being, in other words. It's out of concern for their social well-being. Being beaten publicly is a humiliation in a culture that highly valued public honor. And the limit is so that the person not be humiliated to the point that they seem of no account in their eyes, when the rest of the community does not think they matter anymore when the fact of their criminality would result in them seeming now to be a them, an outsider, one whom I don't have to care for anymore. But the limit here is concerned with even the criminal being able to reintegrate into the community. Yes, even them. This is one of the main themes of Father Greg Boyle's writing, which some of you may be familiar with that society today tends to view some as being beyond the pale, out of sight, out of mind, or in that category of criminal, exactly like this passage, whom I can safely ignore because they don't deserve to be included in my in-group. They have put themselves in the them category, and surely I don't need to feel kinship with them, right? But this passage in Deuteronomy says, yes, even them committing even an offense that requires a punishment just short of the death penalty, even that is not enough to justify humiliating them past the point of no return. It doesn't justify holding them of no account. Even they matter. In chapter 21, this is taken even further. Although again, in a way that will take a little cultural imagination for us to see the point. Verses 22 and 23 say, And should there be against a person a death sentence, and they are put to death, and you hang them on a tree, you shall not let their corpse stay the night on the tree, but you shall surely bury it on that day. For a hanged man is God's curse, and you shall not pollute your soil that Yahweh your God is about to give you. So now we have a criminal who has passed into death penalty territory. In the ancient world, such people were often killed publicly, so as to make an example of them both to increase the shame on them, as with the public beating we were just talking about, but also to deter others from making the same mistakes. In many ancient cultures, some bodies would be displayed for some length of time after death to really make the point. 
but not so in Israel. Because even a criminal of this degree, even their dignity, continues to matter. Robert Alter, the Jewish literary scholar whose translation I am using when I'm quoting Deuteronomy, writes that the phrase, you shall not pollute your soil, which sounds kind of strange to us today, how does hanging a body up pollute the soil? He writes that this is a clause suggesting that a corpse left unburied is a violation of the sacredness of the human body, a violation that pollutes the land. This man deserves to die. They're being cut off from their people. Surely we don't need to worry about their dignity, right? Yes, even them. The extreme care that Deuteronomy takes to define the in-group, the holy people of God, it's balanced with this idea of caring even for them, the out-group. Even those who have removed themselves from the in-group through their own actions, even them. It reminds us, if we listen with ears attuned to the themes of scripture, of a story Jesus told once. A man was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among robbers, and they beat him and left him for dead. And as he was lying on the side of the road, a priest came along. And when the priest saw him, he crossed to the other side of the road and kept walking. Then a Levite came along and did the same, crossing to the other side and hurrying on his way. But then a Samaritan came and saw the man and took pity on him, bandaged him up, and took care of him. So who was a neighbor to the injured man, Jesus asked? The Samaritan, one of the hated thems of Jesus' day. Go and do likewise, Jesus said, even to them. But then Deuteronomy stretches this theme yet still further. Chapter 22 begins in this way. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep slipping away and ignore them. You shall surely return them to your brother. And if your brother is not close and you do not know who he may be, you shall gather it into your house and it shall be with you until your brother inquires for it and you return it to him. And thus you shall do for any lost thing of your brothers that may be lost by him and that you find. You shall not be able to ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox falling on the way and ignore them. You shall surely raise them up. And then in verse six, should a bird's nest happen to be before you on the way or in any tree or on the ground with fledglings or eggs and the mother is crouched over the fledglings or over the eggs, you shall not take the mother together with the young. You shall surely send off the mother and the young you may take for yourself so that it may go well with you and you will enjoy length of days, which is, by the way, the very same promise that's connected to the Ten Commandment about honoring father and mother, which is kind of interesting. And then in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it threshes. And finally, in chapter 20, verse 19, should you besiege a town many days to do battle against it, you shall not destroy its trees to swing an axe against them, for from them you shall eat, and you shall not cut them down. I wanted to read all of those four passages together because I don't think we need to belabor every nuance of each of them. But instead, we should notice that this theme of yes, even them, extends beyond humanity to the animal world and to creation as a whole. The dignity and comfort of the ox as it works and of the trees that surround an enemy city, they are consistently brought up as concerns that should be in mind for Israel. You shall not be able to ignore it, as one of the verses says. Some might point out that the concern 
isn't necessarily for the dignity or worth of nature in and of itself, but rather in the sustainability of it. You know, if you eat the mother and the eggs, pretty soon there are no more birds for food. If you cut down the trees, they're not going to bear fruit for you. And so maybe, this perspective would say, these verses are more about human flourishing than the flourishing of non-human creation. Like the promise in one of the passages that I pointed out. It's about the, so that it may go well with you. But while there is an aspect to that in these verses, I think to focus just on the selfish side, the selfish human interest side, would be to miss the deeper point that the Bible as a whole makes, which is that the flourishing of nature and the flourishing of humanity are bound up together. And you can't have one without the other. This goes back to Genesis, when humanity is made in God's image, and as such is given the task of ruling well over creation as God's representatives. We saw it pop up in Jeremiah, where the consequences of Israel's sin would be suffered not only by the humans responsible, but by nature as well. And this is at the heart of what Paul means when he says in the New Testament that creation is groaning in anticipation of Jesus making all things new. Creation itself suffers when humans walk away from their God-given responsibility to take care of all things. And then humans suffer the consequences as the suffering of creation boomerangs back onto us. God is interested in the holistic flourishing of all things because all of creation is bound up together. Our in-group, the out-group, animals, trees, even them. Deuteronomy sets up a theme of the holy, set-apart people of God. But the competing theme that we've explored today reminds us that that people of God is chosen not to be an insular, holy huddle, but rather to be the starting place from which God could do the work of making all things new. We're reminded that the bigger story of Scripture is of an ever-widening scope for who matters to God and what matters to God. That if we are to find our place in that story, And in that people of God, we will be holy, set apart, and different from those who put their trust in idols instead of Yahweh. But what we will at the same time discover is that part of that holiness, that differentness, is that we will find ourselves doing what would otherwise be unthinkable, asking them and hearing the response, yes, even them. Okay, but but them? Yes, even them. But surely not them. Yes, even them. Until, as the grand vision of Revelation puts it, people from every tribe and nation and language and people will be standing before our God in a creation made new. Amen. Now, Seeing that the scope of God's care extends ever wider and wider to include all of creation is, by definition, a pretty broad idea, one that means we could go in any number of directions in response to it. And so for our response time as a community on Sunday, we decided to limit ourselves and narrow things down a bit. And I thought we might be able to walk through that on the podcast here as well today. One of the ways that this idea plays out in the New Testament is with maybe Jesus's most radical command. Radical in terms of being so stunningly countercultural, both in his day and ours. No one in his day was saying anything like what I'm about to read. And in fact, I would say that to whatever extent these words do not sound radical to us today, we're either mishearing them or it's because our culture 
has actually moved closer to what Jesus is saying here as a result of Christians wrestling with this very idea over the last 2000 years. But Jesus said this in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be complete or perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is complete. And so we're going to do that to love our enemies by praying for them. And we're going to do this in four steps. And in between each of them, you can just pause the podcast until you're ready to move on. But first, before we call to mind an enemy, (laughs) some of you probably had no trouble doing that already. Uh, But before we get there, we're going to circle back to a different idea, something that is foundational for this whole concept. See, love for enemies is not some unnatural virtue that we bring out of ourselves through sheer will. Love for enemies is a practice we undertake out of our secure position in the love of Christ, where knowing that we are safe in the love of Christ, the power of our enemies over us gets relativized, put in its proper place. So these, this first step, I invite you to listen to these words from Ephesians 3, and then to rest for a minute in God's love for you. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of God's glory, they may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Take a minute to rest in that truth. And then second, from that secure place of being loved and cared for, I'd ask you to call to mind an enemy. Whether one particular person or a group of some sort, some of us might think, surely I don't have enemies. I was once in a service in 2016 that did this practice or something like it by putting a giant pictures of Trump and Hillary in split screen. <laughs> so maybe it's a political enemy, someone using their power to harm the world that God loves. Maybe it's a certain Russian bent on empire. Maybe it's someone closer to home who has caused or is causing you or people you love significant emotional pain. I'll give you a minute here to bring them to mind and to feel all the feelings (laughs) that their presence in your mind brings up. So go ahead and pause the podcast and come back when you're ready. Third, we're going to tell God what we really think about this person or these people. The Psalms are full of demands from the people of God that God bring justice into the world, in part by dealing with enemies that God would put a stop to exactly these sorts of people and dynamics. This might seem incompatible with loving our enemies, but I don't think it is. Prayer for enemies is not prayer that their trauma-inducing actions would continue, that their unjust systems and practices would flourish. We can pray for them and 
demand justice. So in these next couple minutes, I invite you to tell God why this person is your enemy and to ask God to put a stop to the pain that they have caused or are causing. And when you've done that, you can come back for the last step. And so now, finally, we will do the hard part. Prayer for the enemy. Again, not that they would succeed in the path they are on, but rather that the love of God, from which we are doing this whole exercise ourselves, would manifest itself in and through even them. That they would be transformed in whatever way they need be, and that God's wholeness, goodness, justice, peace, and love would wash over them. However hard this might be, let's extend God's love to, yes, even them. God, we love you. Thank you that your love is an ever-widening miracle, reaching out to the thems, including us. May you give us the power through your spirit to love even them as you love us. Amen.